Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very happy to have back on the podcast Katya Hoyer. Katya is a historian and journalist. She's also a research fellow at King's College London and a fellow at the Royal Historical Society. She is also a global opinions contributing columnist for the Washington Post, with her main research areas being in the history of modern Germany. She is the author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871-1918. And she is the author of the latest international bestseller, Beyond the Wall, The History of East Germany. And that is the book we talk about in this conversation. We start the conversation by talking about what is the culture of East and West Germany and how East Germany came to be. We talk about... Uh, East Germany and its relationship with the Soviet Union. We talk about the political makeup of East Germany in the beginning. We talk about a type of building socialism in the 50s. We talk about creation of the Berlin Wall and the reception of the wall. The Stasi of East Germany. Failed uh, economics in East Germany in the 1980s. Similarities between unification in 1871 and reunification in 1990. We talk a little bit about Angela Merkel and the post-wall era of Germany, and what are the ripple effects in modern-day Germany? And finally, how does a unified Germany move forward? As I said, I've had Katja on before. Uh, for folks that are uh, curious to listen to that episode, that's uh, number 185. The title is Blood and Iron, A History of the German Empire, where we talk about her first book, Blood and Iron. Um, this conversation, um, for me, was just as good, if not even better. Uh, she's such a wonderful person. Uh, I absolutely love her spirit. I love her knowledge. I love her, the way in which she writes and how she's able to talk about uh, about Germany uh, in, in many, many matters. Um, I loved Beyond the Wall. I thought it was a, a fantastic book. It, it deserves all the acclaim that it has received. So folks should go out there and, uh, and pick up the book um, and uh, support her as much as, uh, as they can. As always, you can uh, subscribe to uh, my Substack at Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com. So get over there, follow, subscribe. You can also find me on YouTube, same thing. Uh, make sure you uh, spread widely and share the podcast with people that you uh, think would be interested in it. And uh, now I bring you Katya Boyer. I am here with Katya Hoyer. Uh, Katya, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking to you again. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for listeners, uh, I talked to Katya on, uh, ooh, I guess it was about almost a year ago. Uh, we talked about your first book. Um, for listeners, they can check out the episode. It's uh, 185. The title is called Blood and Iron, A History of the German Empire, often taken from the, the speech, Blood and Iron. And I think at the time when we were talking, you were uh, working on another book or close to finishing it, which is what we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, the book is entitled Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany. Um, it's fabulous. It's a fabulous kind of a sequel, I guess. So I guess, what it, was it that um, you wanted to say, I guess, with this book? I don't want to compare it to the previous book, but obviously both are about German history. What were you trying to say with the new one? Um, you know, obviously, it's different time periods, but that you didn't say maybe with the first book or or what was your, your main aim with this one? Um, well, I've had an interest in East Germany for quite a long time. Um, so the um, idea really was to explore a part of German history that I think hasn't really been explored in, in as much depth yet, certainly not in English, um, in the way that I, you know, I think it deserves because it's such a comprehensive um, subject. And there are really two reasons why I think um, it was particularly or it kind of particularly spoke to me. Uh, one's rather personal. I was actually born in East Germany in the in the German Democratic Republic, as it was called, hmm. um, just about still in, in 1985. Um, and it's a strange kind of situation. You know, you were kind of born in a country that isn't on the map today. And it, it kind of, you know, but you only well, I was only um, four years old when the Berlin Wall fell, five years old when the country disappeared. So it's not something that I've 
you know, got very strong memories or experiences of. And therefore, there's always been this um, curiosity really about what the state was like that I could have potentially, you know, lived in, basically, if I'd been born, say, 20 years earlier. Um, and on the other side, there's my sort of professional interest as a historian that um, has kind of led me to to an opinion towards East Germany that it's it's basically underrepresented when you think how much has been written about the Nazis, about the Weimar Republic, about the First World War, the Second World War, um, and yet East Germany as a a kind of time period as a as an era um, is longer than all of those things combined, and a lot less has actually been written about it. Um, it always seems to be like this other Germany, you know, the weird one, the anomaly, the, the footnote, if you will, to the proper Germany, which is, is West Germany. And so, what I was also trying to do from a prof- professional point of view as a historian of of Germany was to try and kind of give this chapter of the national history a, a proper place in the in the narrative, rather than you know, relegating it to a, oh, and there was also East Germany kind of thing, you know, that I think has happened before. Mm. Yeah, I, well, obviously you do a fantastic job of that in uh, in the book. I guess the the one question, I'm sure we'll touch on this maybe throughout the conversation a bit, but how do we, I guess, understand mm, culturally, I guess, when people think of Germany, they I think most of the time they think of, you know, Germany as it currently is, or right, maybe the Weimar Republic, but was there a, a a major difference when it was East and West Germany? I mean, these are the same people, no? This is the same history, same culture for up until that point. I guess, you know, is it does the throughout the time when East Germany is in existence, how does it kind of uh, have this uh, unifying kind of um, relationship with Germany as it is? Is it like German first and then East West German or? How, how was it, I guess, uh, in terms of a culture and a kind of, uh, you know, in terms of tradition, uh, was it connected or or was it very distinct in the period that East Germany was there? Well, it couldn't really, the existence of two German states couldn't really eradicate the feeling of of just being German because that's, that's much older, it's got much longer and deeper mm. historical roots. Um, so just maybe briefly, East Germany came about really... Um, because of the Second World War, the fact that Germany had obviously lost the Second World War and was then divided into four uh, zones of occupation because it had basically completely morally and politically bankrupted itself when Nazism collapsed. Um, the the victorious powers um, decided that they would have to run Germany on behalf of the Germans because they couldn't be trusted uh, to do that. And as a result of that, they decided to split Germany into four zones, um, one each kind of being occupied and run by by a different power. And one of these fell to Soviet Russia. Mm. And as a result of that, you ended up basically with different um, political systems um, evolving, one, one capitalist, uh, so the three Western zones that fell to France, the US and Britain separately, um, and then the Eastern zone that fell to Soviet Russia developing in a different way, um, and that then eventually crystallized into two German states, East and West, in, in 1949, when they were both founded. And that's not something that the German people got any say over, or that is kind of a natural evolution, you know, over kind of decades or centuries even, of kind of a national consciousness in a way. So it didn't really matter, certainly not initially, whether you lived in, say, Dresden in the East or in Cologne in the West, um, in terms of the way that you still felt German. Um, having said all of that over time, I mean, the, the state East Germany was in existence for, for over four decades, for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. And over that time, people were born in that state, um, you know, and had East German passports. Um, there were separate sports teams, for example, East and West. And, and there was certainly a, a form of identity that began to develop. And also people underwent completely different experiences. I'm sure we talk about the society and things like that in a in a little while. But the idea is that they kind of lived separate lives almost. Um, so imagine like, I don't know, a, a couple breaking up for an extended period of time and then getting back together. And, you know, they come back together as different people because they've effectively, you know, gone through different experiences in between, done different things. Um, and then you get back together and expect it to be as before. And more often than not, it doesn't turn out that way. So that, I think, is probably the closest analogy I can come up with. So Germans are Germans, but the fact that they've 
kind of gone through forcibly, not by choice, gone through these different experiences does mean that eventually a, a separate identity developed. It's, it's very interesting how, you know, in, in, I'm sure we're talking about in terms of society and, and, and culture. And, and again, that kind of another unification period of, of sorts. And so it's, it's, a, it's very, very interesting. So in the, in the first part of the book or a couple of chapters, you, you talk about this history of East Germany with, with uh, you know, kind of a communist state in the Soviet Union, um, which was really interesting. I, I didn't know a whole lot about that. Uh, I guess generally, you know, you're talking about these four kind of quadrants uh, or zones that, that, you know, Germany was split up into after, after World War II. And I, I guess what was the, the motivation behind that, of course, and then Really, though, how is this relationship with, you know, Stalin's communist Russia and and this compromise? And then you can kind of lead into uh, uh, Walter Ulbricht, uh, who who was uh, pretty important for uh, East Germany after uh, after the war and, and that relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, so initially, nobody wanted to split up Germany. Um, there was talk of that during the war um, because it was felt that this is the second you know, major war that had now uh, emanated from German soil and, and Germany needed to be made um, harmless um, so it couldn't attack again. And so there were various proposals on the table, but eventually all the allies came to the conclusion that it shouldn't be split up. Um, so the, the split into four zones wasn't supposed to be a permanent thing. It was just that it's a large country with, you know, millions of people in it and it had to be run by somebody that wasn't German because when you think about you know, the pervasive nature really of Nazism, the way that it really um, kind of leaked into all areas of society. Nobody could be trusted. You know, you look at somebody who was a judge, say, in the Nazi era, you know, can you really trust them to be a judge again? Same with, say, the police or with government on all levels. Um, so unlike the First World War, after the Second World War, um, it was decided that somebody else had to run Germany, mm. uh, for a while at least, until Germany could be democratized and denazified. Um, but none of the powers, having just fought a major, major war, um, you know, could have run Germany entirely by themselves. Um, it was just too big a task. And so the idea was that they'd each kind of run a part of Germany um, as a military sort of government, if you will, um, but make decisions in uh, unison, and there was something called the Allied Control Council (ACC), which was supposed to be a, a central kind of government where all four powers agreed on stuff. So, say for example, if they wanted to introduce a new currency, all four of them should, in theory, come together and say, "Right, we're going to roll out a new currency in Germany." And then the way that this is done happens in each of the four zones. The problem is, of course, that when you have two entirely opposing systems, so you've got um, you know, the idea of, of sort of socialism slash communism in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, and then in the West, of course, the sort of capitalist democratic system, um, each power very quickly started to imprint its own sort of ideal on, on its zones. Um, and therefore, you know, over the course of, of sort of the next four years, from 1945 to 49, the, the two sides of Germany drifted apart um, until it was basically, there was no going back anymore and, and it solidified into two different states. But this wasn't something that the Soviets in particular were, were keen on, in my opinion, um, despite the fact that this is often portrayed otherwise. I think Stalin had really sort of drawn the short straw there when it came to his uh, zone of occupation. He'd basically received the east, the northeast, which um, is quite flat, uh, sandy soil, not particularly good for for anything really other than very specialized uh, forms of agriculture. Um, all of the industry was in the west, um, in the in the raw region, which was um, occupied by Britain. Um, so basically he couldn't draw as many kind of reparations and resources as punishment for the Second World War and, and to, to rebuild his own country out of the east of Germany as he could have done if the whole of Germany was still um, kind of together. Um, the thing is, though, because he, he has his own zone rebuilt by German communists, so he sends a group of communists back into Germany that had spent the war in exile. They'd kind of fled Nazi Germany because they were obviously under, under mortal danger there and spent the war in, in Moscow. And these people now get sent back into the east of, of Germany to rebuild 
things. And to them, this is the first and only chance to build socialism in Germany. They're all convinced communists. And they think for the first time now, here's a chance to have an actual socialist state on German soil for which you don't need a revolution because that hadn't happened at various points before. And they'd kind of already given up on the idea, more or less, some of them. And now they get get the chance for the first time. So they kind of work against Stalin in many ways and that they basically want their own separate German state that, that they can use to build socialism. And that's how, uh, to some extent, this kind of situation became more and more a, a fact, really, even though a lot of other um, people did not want to split Germany into two um, bits. Hmm. How how was it that there there became this hierarchical makeup of the German Democratic Republic in East Germany? Um, and how did they kind of form their own constitution? First elections in 1950. How, how did these things come about if it's a new country that's been basically established? Well, initially, because Stalin wasn't keen on splitting um, things up. And I mean, East Germany was only founded uh, nearly half a year after after West Germany was as a state. Shows you again how reluctant they were. Mm. Um, they're still really keen. Both sides, actually, East and West Germany, are very keen not to look like the splitters. You know, both sides basically want to blame the other um, for the division of Germany. And so they both create a constitution that almost looks, on paper at least, like the other so that they can be um, merge together again if necessary. They both declare their constitutions um, temporary until German unity can be restored. And on paper, they both look very similar. So East Germany actually, despite its uh, sort of dictatorial makeup, um, has got a multi-party system on paper. So there are various different political parties, and some of them are actually the same as in the in the West. So again, with the idea that you know you can merge them back together um, the moment the opportunity arises. Um, so initially, um, Walter Albrecht, who is sort of the leader of these East German communists, uh, uh, sorry, of the German communists that get sent back from Moscow, um, decides that at least he needs to make it sort of look democratic, both to please the West and ironically also to please Stalin to say to him, well, look, I'm trying here. You know, we have to have the separate state for now, but I'm really keeping it in a way that. Um, allows us to merge them back together later if, if need be. And that's also how these kind of faux elections come about. So they, they aren't like real elections in the sense that you get an actual choice. Basically, you go into the into the voting uh, booth and there's a list in front of you that has has got all of the names of the different candidates on it from all the different political parties. Um, but it's a fixed list. So really, all that you do is you can't you can't choose the individual candidates or the individual parties. You just agree to the list. So you fold that piece of paper as you get it, and you just put it right back into the urn and and walk back out. And people called it paper folding basically because it was such a farcical procedure, you know, rather than actual real elections because all of the numbers of the individual candidates were already set. And of course, the socialist uh, ruling party, the SED, um, always had the, the largest number of seats um, and the other parties only got allocated kind of lesser numbers. Um, so all of that is there to make it look on paper as though the two Germanys can be unified kind of at any moment in time. Yeah, it's interesting how there's this relationship with the Soviet Union was very important. Um, after Stalin dies, how does East Germany, they have some kind of chaos and, you know, there's some uprisings and how does Ulrich move away from Stalin and kind of do this building of socialism of sorts? Um, so Ulbricht already started that even while Stalin was still alive, um, which was quite interesting. Um, he actually gets summoned to Moscow several times, uh, Ulbricht, you know, like a sort of naughty schoolboy that has to go back to the headmaster and he gets told to, to not overdo it, which is somewhat ironic. I mean, if Stalin tells you to, to just calm down and, you know, take sort of chill, then, you know, you're basically taking it to a, to a whole new level of building up communism. Um, because it was all too quick, basically, all that Stalin wanted out of East Germany is reparations. And Ulbricht was pressing ahead with this building up of, of socialism so quickly uh, that he was basically wrecking the economy. And this is something that, um, of course, Stalin didn't want. Um, but then once Stalin dies in 1953, um, there's, a, there's a brief moment where 
sort of people in East Germany who initially actually a lot of them um, you know thought that this could genuinely be a new Germany something better um, than all of the the militarism the chaos and the and the wars that they'd seen before there's a brief moment when Stalin dies when people think actually maybe now there's this moment we can build up a genuinely kind of better society um, and that's very quickly crushed when they find out that basically you have no means of of uh, initiating any kind of reform really there, there's no the press isn't free there's censorship uh, the different political parties do exist but they're very much under the cosh of the um of, of the socialist uh, party um and so when all of this comes together alongside kind of very severe economic problems that the country has and and people work very very hard and, and get very little out of it at the end of the day shelves are still empty the, the currency isn't worth much um, and the country is still struggling even, you know, after four years um, of trying to build it up. Um, at that point, everything comes to a sort of collision and, and, and uh, you get a mass uprising um, in 1953 in, in, the, in the summer on the 17th of June, um, which the Soviets have to come in and crush. And once that's happened, it makes it very obvious to, to Walter Albrecht that he can't really stay in the saddle by trying to ignore his people. And the Soviets, because ultimately, you know, he has no protection, basically, if that if that happens. And so he follows kind of a twin course, really, of, of trying to appease the Soviets and, and doing what they say, even though Stalin is dead at that point. Um, and trying to appease his own people as well by, by loosening some of the restrictions, um, allowing a degree of capitalism back into the economy um, and sort of just genuinely or generally, um, you know, liberalizing things um, in all, all sorts of ways. And that is quite interesting. You see this back and forth basically throughout the uh, throughout the whole time of the so of the of the of the East German history, basically, that you get this kind of opening up and appeasement of the people. And then the moment people feel or the regime feels it's back in the saddle. Um, it sort of closes back in on itself um, at, at other times. And the same goes for its relationship with the Soviet Union, um, which kind of goes, uh, swings back and forth between a defiance or a sense that East Germany wants to do its own thing. Um, and then on the other hand, realizing that it can't um, because it's entirely dependent on, on goodwill in Moscow. Hmm. So as all of this is happening, how does the idea of building a wall in Berlin, which we now know as the Berlin Wall, how did that come about? And put it—I mean, we can know—we can look back on this now as you know, it's terrible. But I guess what were the what was the rationale and the motivations at the time for building a wall um, in Berlin, um, and how how was it received by by people in, in East Germany and and and, and folks in, in in West Germany as you know this wall through 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 Berlin? Just kind of give the context and the rationale for for doing that at the time so i think uh, people often forget that you know we imagine the burden wall to be a, a barrier really between the whole of the communist world and the whole of the of the western world when actually what made east germany uh, sorry west germany very attractive to east germans is that you can move back and forth within the same country so if you're East German and you think, actually, I have better chances to, to make something of myself, to earn um, a decent income, to, to get a better living standard in West Germany, it's not like moving to a different country. People speak the same language over there. You immediately become a citizen. You can start working. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an easier choice to make compared to, say, somebody in Poland or in Czechoslovakia to say they want to move, say, to France. You know, to a completely different country, and that 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 problem that there is kind of another Germany just on the other side um, is always there right from the beginning, from 1949. So by 1961, when the Berlin Wall is built, um, around three million people had left the country, um, and the the population was reduced to to around 16 million or so, or 15, I think, even at that point. Um, from 18 million. And you basically end up uh, with, with a complete brain drain. It's mostly people, um, like middle-class people, skilled workers, engineers, people who will basically get a better life in, in West Germany. When you think about the idea that socialism is supposed to create a classless um, society, so basically everybody earns the same, everybody's got the same living standards, there's no absolute poverty, 
but in exchange, there's also no no luxury. And so anybody above the average, so basically middle-class people upwards, will lose out in a system like that. And then there's another system just on the other side where they don't lose out, where they do get higher salaries and, and better living standards than the average. And that's why most most of these types of people leave. And that's, of course, a serious problem for the state when your doctors, your lawyers, your architects, um, your teachers run away um, and you basically can't run uh, the country and it stops to function. Um, and initially, that was still completely legal and safe to do. Um, so right at the beginning, you could walk across at any point, um, really, between East and West Germany. Um, in 1952, um, the inner German border, so basically the long land border between East and West Germany, uh, is closed off. Um, but Berlin, which is still occupied by all four powers um, is still an open city because it is, uh, it's different basically in terms of its status. It doesn't belong in theory to East or West Germany. It's kind of just divided into the four occupational zones still. So if you are in Dresden in, in East Germany and you want to go to West Germany, all you have to do is travel to East Berlin, which is legal. And then you just walk across um, into West Berlin. Um, it's also legal because the city is open. Um, and then you take a train out from West Berlin um, into West Germany, and that was that was safe, legal, um, and and perfectly feasible, and that's why so many people left. So Walter Albrecht, as I said, really worried about the economy and about the 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 imbalance that that this brain drain created um, has been uh, pestering the Soviets basically for for years at that point in 1961 um, to be able to close off that last remaining border. The Soviets were concerned because it's a very fragile balance. I mean, as I said, the, the city of Berlin was still occupied. So you had American and British and French troops in there. So any change to, to the city was potentially going to create um, a, a huge problem in the Cold War. You know, this when you think about this, it's 1961. That's one year before the Cuban Missile Crisis. It really mm -hmm. is the the, the height of Cold War tension. Anyone yeah. fires a shot at anybody else or anybody overreacts, somebody gets arrested or something like that, um, and it could potentially create a crisis and bloodshed on an altogether different scale. And so the Soviets kind of held back for a long time. But 1961, it had really reached a point where the, the GDR was, was falling apart, which in itself would have created a, a security problem for the, for the Soviets. Um, because they basically didn't want to obviously give it up um, without getting anything back for it. Um, and so they eventually consented and, and allowed Walter Obrecht to build that wall. And interestingly, when it does get built, um, it does initially create a lot of um, misery, in particular also bloodshed to start with, uh, simply because it is a really imperfect kind of physical construction. Mm. Um, you know, you mustn't imagine that overnight an, an actual physical wall um, is standing in the middle of Berlin. This was a city that wasn't meant to be divided. Um, so, you know, people used um, buildings, for example, as part of the of the wall, which meant that they had to break up the windows, um, whole streets, canals, rivers, you know, all had to somehow be closed off. And to start with, all that stood between you and the other side uh, were soldiers, people. And so basically they had to um, they were told to shoot at people if if you walked across or tried to get across uh, because there was no physical boundary to start with that could have stopped anybody. Um, and that's why you get so many of the casual overall casualties really happening in the first few years before the wall is kind of perfected and, um, and holds most people back uh, just in its physical presence. Um, and so that that is, of course, creating a lot of genuine misery and bloodshed to start with. However, I also spoke to a lot of people who lived quite far away from that and, and had no interest in leaving, really, uh, mostly sort of working class people in the in the smaller um, cities away from Berlin who said that it didn't really concern them because they had, had no intention to leave. Um, and they actually said for the first time um, the situation was beginning to stabilise. It felt like the economy had a chance to recover. Um, one woman said to me the the doctor had intended to go there, their village GP, um, had intended to leave um, and now couldn't, so you had to stay. And everybody in the village was relieved that they still had a had a doctor there, basically. So those kinds of mm -hmm. things, those stories also exist, and it's that complexity I was really trying to get across in the book. It's it's, it's interesting because it it seems as if Berlin at the time was a type of crossroads, right? But I guess the the other question I have there though is, I mean, it's still 
it's still a, a wall. I mean, it's it's a, it's a literal physical barrier. I mean, walls keep people. I mean, it, I mean, you can in one sense to see walls as being aggressive of sorts of it's keeping people out or trying to keep people in. But I mean, was it was it received in those kinds of ways? I guess for people living in Berlin, maybe people outside of Berlin, maybe less so. But I guess was it seen as as a kind of negative, aggressive thing, or was it just kind of like, yeah, that's what we have to do. We have to just make sure that you know we can keep our economy okay. Or I, I don't know. I just I guess like the the optics of you know a wall right in the middle of the city. I mean, how I guess how was that received, or was it just really mixed? Uh, you know, because there had to been enough people that were going to go along with it, right? There wasn't just going to be like, yeah, sure, do it. I mean, some people didn't revolt necessarily against it, right? So I guess what was the like tenor of people, you know, accepting or not accepting an actual physical structure in, in Berlin? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you get um, actually very little resistance against it. So there's certainly not the sort of uprising off the scale that happened in in 1953, as we discussed mm. earlier, or that you see again in 1989, where there's virtually like millions out on the streets. Um, that doesn't happen. There is unrest in, in Berlin, but it's actually more on the western side than, than on the eastern side. So in West Berlin, um, people are very outraged about this whole thing and, and obviously feel free to also um, uh, sort of announce that outrage out on the streets. Um, but I think a lot of people um, felt that uh something had to happen i mean it is really odd now in hindsight to say that because obviously the berlin wall is an entirely cruel structure that that tore people and and families and friends apart from one another especially in berlin um and that is one side so you speak to those people and they were absolutely furious and and many of those that are still around still are absolutely furious about it um but on the flip side you also have a lot of people who um you know, sort of felt that the economy of the state, they were plowing a lot of work and effort and um, belief into and hope into um, was crumbling underneath them. It was kind of like you were working incredibly hard and, you know, everything that you were trying to build up was poured into a system that that trained people. Many people did their university education, for example, in the East or, or their degrees or their, their apprenticeships and then actually went with those qualifications into the West and that was also something that aggravated a lot of other people. So it, it completely depended on whether you were um, sort of happy where you were. Um, and lots of people were very rooted, for example, in their local communities. They just didn't want to leave. They'd been at home in a particular region for, for centuries and saw no reason to leave um, and wanted that to stabilize. So it is really interesting that actually when you speak to most people um, that were around at the time, they they perceived the 1960s as a period of relative stability. It needs mm -hmm. to be seen in context as well when you think people had previously had the post-war years where everything was, was unstable. Then, you know, they obviously had the Second World War, Nazism. Before that, you had the Great Depression following from the Wall Street crash. You had the Weimar Republic that didn't really work yet, the First World War. It's a long, long time before anybody in East Germany had known any kind of stability. And the 1960s felt like for the first time, you know, you had your job, you had somewhere to live, um, childcare and all those things were being built up. And the cities were beginning to, to be cleared of the rubble of the bombings um, and, and new buildings were being erected. So, you know, there was also kind of this offset that the government tried to put into place, namely you know, we've locked people in, now we need to make it, it worthwhile for them to stay. Mm. Yeah, it's, just, it's very fascinating what you're talking about, the stability and economic stability, especially the context you give there. So tell us about this, the Stasi, the Stasi empire, right? And kind of keeping folks in East Germany as opposed to keeping others out. To talk about that and, and, and how, how that came about and why that was felt to be necessary. Well, the, the Stasi, which is arguably the most, you know, famous or rather infamous um, aspect, really, of East Germany, mm -hmm. um, was a part of that system right from the beginning. It was actually set up in 1950 um, as the, the sword and shield of the party was kind of the, the, the motto of, of this organization, like the protection, basically, of the, mm -hmm. of the political elite. Um, and I think it came out of um, a kind of deep, seated sense of paranoia that that the elites of the state could never shake off and would never shake off and um, there was always a sense that they didn't trust 
their own people. Um, they didn't uh, believe that people would kind of genuinely try and, and work with the system and build it up, even where they did. And when they did, um, there was still always an underlying sense of we, we need to watch them, otherwise something is going to happen. And I think that's partially due to the individuals that you've got there, because you know, if you're a communist in 1949, you haven't suddenly come out of nowhere. You've been a communist for a long time and you were willing to die for it potentially because it was incredibly dangerous to be a German communist during the, the war years and before under Nazism and also in the Weimar Republic. Um, so these people were kind of in a habit because they'd done it their whole lives of looking over their shoulder, not trusting even the people around them because they were all denouncing each other uh, when they lived in, in Stalin's uh, Russia as well, and Stalin was beginning to, to target German communists because he suspected them of being spies for, for Hitler. Um, so they they had been in that mode of you know paranoia, looking around them, looking under their beds, literally, uh, in some cases, um, all the time. And that's something that uh, becomes kind of state policy because everybody in the government is like that. Um, and then the Stasi becomes kind of like an instrument for the government to, to feel safe, you know, to have somebody there that, that watches them. Uh, but it very quickly also turns on to uh, the very people it seeks to protect. So the, the government ministers themselves also get spied upon by the, by the Stasi. So, for example, they because they, they, they fear the public after the 1953 uprising, there's genuine um, uh, kind of fear there that, that they might be targeted by by a kind of popular revolution. They all move out of Berlin into a little settlement in the middle of the forest, north of Berlin. Um, and that settlement is run by the Stasi, which is a quite a, a kind of claustrophobic situation for a lot of them to be in. So it's, it's a fenced off, uh, kind of like a gated community, if you will, Mm. Um, where they all live, um, it's got its own like bakery, its own butchers, its its own hairdressers, uh, but everybody in that settlement works for the Stasi. So imagine you are the wife of a minister and you go to have your uh, hair cut and you talk to the hairdresser and you sit there and you complain that there are no oranges at the moment because of shortages in, in food supplies. Guess where the hairdresser's going to go next to tell <laughs> you know, basically the Stasi that that you complained about this thing, you know. So basically it becomes an all-knowing thing that becomes so uh, mighty and overpowering that even people in government themselves don't really know how to control it anymore. And, and that's kind of how it takes on its own life. Mm. Um, you know, just to give you one more example, Eric Mirko, who runs the, the Stasi for most of the time, um, actually starts collating information even on the second leader of East Germany, um, Eric Honecker, who runs uh, East Germany for the second half of its existence, um, in a in a little red suitcase. You couldn't make this up. I mean, it's just like pure <laughs> spy novel material. Um, and, and in this red suitcase, he keeps things like, um, for example, funds that Honecker is supposed to have embezzled uh, to buy a, a sort of little country um, bungalow for his mistress. Um, also, when he Honecker was arrested during his, his early years um, under the Nazi regime, he was arrested and his father pleaded on his behalf, you know, to ensure basically that he wasn't being uh, killed. Um, and his father sent a letter to the, to the Nazi authorities to say that his son, Eric Honecker, has now seen the error of his ways and is now convinced that fascism is the right way forward, you know, which he obviously only said to get Honecker out of uh, danger. Um, but these papers were also kept in that little red suitcase. So here's somebody who's supposed to protect the government and the head of government collecting information on those very people just in case he needed incriminating material one day. And that's kind of how the Stasi um, spirals out of control and becomes this kind of huge uh, monster of an organization that controls um, and watches and, and monitors pretty much every aspect of life um, in the GDR. Yeah, it's just so it's it does feel kind of like a, a spy novel. It's 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 wild that that's you know for folks uh, that was a reality. Like that, that this is the conditions they were living under, and it's interesting how in in the book and when you tell this story, it it just seems that there's maybe some good aspects to some of the things we're trying to do economically, but it just this period, particularly in East Germany, just feels like this aspect of you know, trial and error, right? Like after World War II, obviously, you know, the, the Nazi regime is as terrible as it was, how how you rebuild, how you have this kind of reconstruction, if you will, was a lot of tr 
trial and error and you have different you know, figures, you have different things going on and some things work, some things get out of control, some things don't. And it's just very interesting to see how that evolves, especially understanding where the world was in terms of the Cold War at the time and where things were economically. Uh, it's just very fascinating to see kind of, you know, East Germany in particular's uh, role there. And, and so when we get to the 80s, how was East Germany trying to focus their economics on, you know, coal and microelectronics and other elements, but it wasn't quite enough for their economic uh, system and how that view of their, you know, economic stability started to change. I, I think in our last conversation, we had talked about, um, you know, kind of early on, uh, turn of the century, maybe that there was this kind of you know, pride that Germany took in, you know, making certain types of materials and really kind of having the German kind of uh, model in terms of uh, many different types of uh, uh, materials. And so I wonder kind of in this period during the 80s, how they were trying to do certain things, but it just wasn't enough, at least in East Germany, I don't know about Western, but East Germany to sustain the, their economic system. And so what was the kind of story there? Well, the fundamental underlying problem is that the German model that has worked fairly success successfully basically all the way from 1871 to now uh, consists of buying cheap stuff um, from poor countries. So at the moment, um, that's, that's well, not poor countries, but countries that have raw materials uh, available cheaply. So at the moment, for instance, that's China and was Russia. Um, and, and then you make things with those raw materials that are highly specialized, require a lot of skill, um, and uh, end up basically being high quality products that people are willing to pay a lot of money for. And then you export those things again. Um, and that's how Germany um, makes money and how how it, how it's basically been able to ride out a lot of economic storms as well. The problem is that East Germany couldn't do that because it wasn't part of a trade network that allowed it to import and export freely. Mm. Um, so it's obviously part of the socialist bloc. Initially, um, West Germany actually put something like a trade embargo in place. It was called the Hallstein Doctrine. Basically, West Germany said that it's the only Germany, the only legitimate Germany. Um, in actual fact, it, it took a long time for it to even come close to accepting that, that East Germany is a country. It was just called the zone, i.e. the zone of occupation. Mm. Um, and so West Germany felt free to say to the rest of the world, well, look, if you want to trade with us and we are the bigger, more prosperous, more powerful country with the industry, then you're not trading with East Germany. Um, and that's a, a kind of principle that most countries adhere to because you wouldn't snub the powerful West German economy um, just so you could do some trade with East Germany. That just didn't happen. Um, and so it was pretty isolated and it had to look to um, other socialist countries to try and trade with. The problem is that the, so the Soviet Union, as kind of the biggest of those countries, was itself struggling through a lot of the time periods that we're talking about there. Um, and it wasn't really able to fulfill um, really either role kind of providing raw materials or um, uh, buying expensive stuff from, from Germany. Neither of those things worked, uh, at least not to the same degree. Um, so that becomes, for instance, quite obvious when initially the Soviet Union promises, as you know, we see with Germany still today, as a, as an issue, promises to to deliver oil and gas um, to East Germany to try and and kind of wean it off the the brown coal coal that it's still using for um, for most of its energy uh, needs at that point. Um, and it does that for a while, and East Germany actually helps build up those pipelines um, that still deliver the stuff to to Germany today. Um, and then at some point after the oil crises of the 70s um, hit in, the Soviet Union decides actually it's probably much better off selling that oil on the world market rather than supplying uh, East Germany as their contracts had actually um, you know, prescribed. And so it just delivers less oil and gas to East Germany than it had previously promised. Um, which then means that, you know, where's East Germany going to get that stuff from? You know, yeah. and this is just one example really of uh, of why the system doesn't quite work and, and why the economy is struggling. They then try and find fields where they can basically do this German model without um, kind of running into these problems that I just mentioned. And one of those fields is microelectronics. 
So they try and get into this whole field of, of sort of computer chip technology and all of that kind of stuff that's beginning to, de to develop in the 1980s. Um, actually working very closely with Japan, interestingly enough, not many, not many people know that. Honig actually traveled over to Japan um, and talked to companies like Toshiba, um, Sony and so on um, about production methods, about automizing uh, certain processes and things like that. Um, but this is basically a pipe dream because it never really comes about. Um, the, the regime is far too old at that point. Honegger is really struggling to get his head around all of these things. For a long time, they didn't take it seriously. Walter Ulbricht had actually started arguing for computer technology in the 1960s, and he was laughed at. It was kind of like, a, you know, it was seen as the project of an, of an aging leader who wanted some sort of legacy. Uh, for himself and, and people just didn't take it seriously enough. Um, so none of that really comes about. Germany does, East Germany does do quite well in certain areas. So for example, it specializes in sort of high quality toys. Sounds an odd thing, but they, but they did. They made sort of, you know, dolls and teddy bears and, and all sorts of things that got exported to the West as well, including the US um, and Britain and other Western countries. Um, also things like furniture. Um, so they made like shelving systems and all sorts of stuff that was then sold in, in Western mail order, like catalogs and stuff. Um, so some of these things kind of brought in some revenue, but it, this, this whole kind of economic loop that I described earlier just doesn't work if you haven't got access to the, to the world market, basically. And that, that was East Germany's problem. And that never went away and it became a huge problem in the 80s. Mm. Um, once the oil crises had sort of hit in and, and caused huge problems, as we know, in the Western world as well. But the GDR didn't have the uh, sort of economic resources, really, to fall back on other models. Mm. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. So tell us about uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989, and then um, reunification in, a year later in October of 1990. Um, and I guess just a comparison point again, how, how was the unification in 1871 similar or dissimilar to the reunification, um, you know, many years later in 1990 um, to, to try and have this kind of unity as a people and country, despite all of the wars and economic uh, conflicts? Um, well, it's it's something that in hindsight, I think the, the fall of, of the Berlin Wall seems more, I think, than a lot of other events in the 20th century, as as if it was uh, like an inevitability. You know, we see it now as something that just had to happen. Um, mm. People in Germany feel the same way. It's because this division of a country seems unnatural. Um, you know, many people would argue that that the whole kind of concept of socialism or communism was never going to work, and so eventually it was going to fall apart. Um, there are all sorts of reasons now, looking back, where people think actually this was always going to happen at some point. But it's interesting that when you actually look at um, what people say and do, right up to unification to to the fall of the Berlin Wall in the autumn of 1989, is that people didn't see it coming. Nobody did. Um, even if you look at stuff like you know um, Ronald Reagan's famous speech where he asked Gorbachev to to tear down this wall, mm -hmm. uh, that was two years before um, it actually happened, and it was just one of many Cold War speeches, you know, where you know calling the the the, the Soviet Empire the evil empire and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it was one of those speeches, and it wasn't taken any more or less seriously at the time than than the others, um, and became kind of iconic in in hindsight. Um, so this wasn't an obvious thing to happen. And even when the Berlin Wall falls in the autumn of 1989, um, there are still many people who'd actually um, been leaders of the, of the mass demonstrations that happened and that led up to this moment, who still say, actually, they, they want to reform the system within the GDR, within East Germany, rather than bring about unification. Many people actually feared what would happen if you immediately unify Germany, what would happen to all the things that, that the East had kind of built up? Um, and so they were still arguing for um, for reform rather than reunification. That that only changed later. Mm. Um, but once the, the wall is open, basically, you have exactly the same situation as before. People are going to leave. Um, and that becomes an, an obvious issue right um, from the beginning. The Soviet Union is also crumbling at the same time. Massive changes in Eastern Europe. You have uh, the Solidarity Movement for more democracy and change in Poland, for example. 
lots of movements all across Eastern Europe. Hungary had opened its border with um, Austria. Um, so really change was afoot in, in East Germany and East Germans were kind of uh, part of that. But also some people felt that they were kind of swept away in this wave of change that, that was happening. Um, and so very quickly, the, the different options are on the table. Um, you know, do you kind of reunify Germany quickly or do you do it over a longer period of time? And the first free elections that happened in the spring of 1990 uh, for East Germans um, show that most people wanted uh, a quick unification process, kind of an immediate unification um, at that point. So things happened so quickly, basically, that between the autumn of 1989 and the spring of 1990, it's completely changed, kind of the tone of discussion has completely changed. Um, and then by, as you say, by... by uh, the um, by October 1990, um, things are kind of all wrapped up. Really, just a year after the Berlin Wall fell, and the two Germanys unify on the on the third of October. Uh, literally overnight, kind of East Germany just ceases to to exist, mm. um, which is interesting. And I think in that respect, um, the reason why I actually compare in the book uh, that unification, that reunification of Germany to the unification of Germany in 1871, um, because both were kind of assumed initially to be some sort of um, uh, like triumph, basically, something that had happened, had been completed. Germany was now one country. Um, but I think in 1871, there was more of an awareness that it would take time to build a society that would that would follow this. So people very consciously start um, interlinking infrastructure, for example, in 1871. You get the railway network is, is expanded. Um, you get various educational reforms, centralization of, of different things uh, to try and create one country now that they've, they've created a state, to create one nation. Um, there's a very conscious effort there to, to, to basically engage in nation building. And I think that's what's lacking in 1990. There was kind of this assumption that you know the two Germanys just would just sort of fall back into each other's arms and everything would be as before mm. um and that that doesn't really work because people forget that 41 years is a long time yeah. people had been living very different lifestyles um you know one thing that we didn't really um, have time to talk about was kind of the role of women for example in East Germany so mm. you know the state encouraged women to go and, and work and study and and take part in society in a way that uh, happened much later in the West and so by 1989 almost all women over 90 percent are in full-time employment um, and feel very you know very equal to to men basically um, and that hadn't happened in in West Germany which was a very conservative society still um, and suddenly it was just expected that um, kind of women go go back home and, and uh, rejoin family life mm. and be housewives um, because childcare was cut back immediately and made it made it pretty difficult for them to to carry on with that lifestyle, kind of having a career and a child at the same time. Um, and those sorts of things. I mean, this is just one example, but in many ways, life had been completely different in the East compared to the West. Um, were ignored this time, and there wasn't really a concerted effort to try and and unify the nation uh, rather than just the, the state structures. Um, really, East Germany was kind of just assimilated into or annexed. Some people um, like to phrase it into West Germany. Um, there wasn't really unification as such. It was more of a of a takeover, really. And that's I think the difference between 1871, where the um, the states kind of all consented to to join that union, and then it was it, it was given time and effort and money and thought um, to try and and create a society out of that one Germany. Mm. Yeah, I do. I did like the the bit in the book about the kind of comparison between eighteen seventy one and nineteen ninety. So one of my my last two questions here um, is it's it's interesting. So it's been thirty three years uh, almost. Uh, very, very close to exactly 33 years. Um, and we had in, in for what was it, 18 of those years, um, in Germany had uh, a pretty, pretty uh, influential chancellor in Angela Merkel. Um, I know you've written about her um, uh, in, in very uh, unique ways. How do we see 
many of the things. So you're talking about economic stability. You're talking about some type of stability overall. You know, for 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 folks in the United States and for folks in in many parts of the world, Germany's you know for you know since 2000 you know five really or whenever whenever Angela Merkel got into into uh, office as chancellor. Germany was seen as as a very powerful state again, um, very very stable, economically secure, etc. You know what's and I know she's from East Germany if if I have this right. So just kind of fast forward us to kind of more present day, um, and, and this isn't entirely what, what's in your book, but I just want to see kind of the what's the ripple effect of okay, we have East West Germany for forty years, then we have uh, reunification, and so. You know what was the the outcome of that? How did that happen, and, and what was the significance of, or or, or if any of, you know, a, a, a chancellor being uh, in leadership from East Germany uh, for almost twenty years and having that kind of stability? Just kind of, you know, briefly, just kind of to describe some of the nuance there um, of the ripple effect and maybe some of her legacy, if you will. Well, it's interesting that um, people assumed in 1990 that the two Germanys would just naturally kind of grow back together because they'd always belonged together. Um, and people clearly wanted that to happen as well, the way that they voted. Um, and also the actions of East Germans had shown that they wanted to be part of um, one country again with West Germany. But I think um, the, the problems that I outlined earlier when you, I think East Germans weren't even aware of that themselves, you know, the, the differences that they'd kind of experienced during those 40 years and, and same in West Germany meant that basically two slightly different societies have emerged and you still see that today in the way that people vote um, and pretty much any other statistic. I find it really interesting that when surveys get done um, and you click kind of on the map of function, so you want the results mapped out on the map of Germany, it almost always highlights the, the exact same borders once again between East and West mm. um, as they would have been before 1989. And I looked at different ones, you know, when I was writing the book to try and see if my kind of instinct on that was right. And it doesn't really matter whether you look at things like uh, unemployment, for example, you come up with with higher figures in the East and the West, so all of these economic factors, but also cultural things. You know, you look at, for instance, whether people drink wine or beer and you end up with, with that border. You look at things like... Um, uh, life satisfaction, you end up with the border drawn there. And and most importantly, mm. for the current circumstances, um, the way that people vote, um, you get much more extreme voting in the in the East, particularly for um, kind of far right parties, but also far left um, as well, uh, because people are simply unhappy and they're looking for alternatives for the, um, you know, from the status quo, which isn't isn't working for them. Um, and so that that is interesting as a legacy, despite having um, a, a kind of chancellor from East Germany there for 16 years. Um, I use Angela Merkel actually as an example quite a lot in the book because I feel, you know, as the as the kind of the most um, prominent, most famous East German, um, she's a good example for a lot of things. But it's interesting that during the um, 16 year tenure as chancellor, and also before when she was a minister and another mm -hmm. prominent. Um, political roles. She never really made a big thing out of East German, of, out of her East German background, because she knew it would it would be detrimental um, to her political career. And even um, right at the end, it's it's very interesting in her last speech, last major speech in office in in 2021. And I start the book with this. Uh, she said that she she still feels as though like she's got a point to prove. She's not a native as it were, you know, of this Federal Republic of Germany that, that she led for 16 years. Uh, people still, like journalists still write about her as if she was sort of alien, you know, to the whole system. Um, one publication, which was actually praising her, which was interesting, called her East German background. So the fact that she lived in the GDR for 35 years, um, ballast, so something like heavy and burdensome that you you should shrug off. Mm. And she said, "Well, hang on a minute. This is 35 years of my life. That's where I, you know, grew up, went to school, went to university, started working. It's not ballast. It's my life." You know, but mm. the fact that she only said that right at the end of her political career, um, rather than during her life as or during her period as, as chancellor, 
I think tells you a lot about how the rest of of the millions of East Germans that were born in that country, um, many or how many of them feel in East Germany, because that doesn't just apply to the Chancellor, which she said in her speech as well. It applies to to a lot of East Germans. You you are in any sort of job, particularly when they go to West Germany, people still look down on them. They still say they're not doing things properly, or they need to learn how to do things properly. Um, this voting pattern that I described earlier, which is really kind of the same, I would say, dynamic as the sort of left behind uh, sort of narrative that you also get in the US and in the in the sort of former, you know, in the Rust Belt and elsewhere. It's the same as that kind of you know detachment from what's going on in in the political um, sphere that you see in East Germany as well. And yet even that people say to East Germans, you know, you were obviously raised in a dictatorship and you don't understand how democracy works. When actually most people in East Germany voted for um, for mainstream parties, the vast majority uh, in the early 90s, that only begins to shift once it's become clear that the system doesn't doesn't work for them, doesn't accept them. Um, and so that legacy, that kind of anger detachment is still very much um, there, I feel. And it's getting worse, actually, when I go back to – I live in the UK, but when I go back to to see friends and family in, in what was East Germany, the, the sort of – it's quite shocking to me every time I go back how, how much more angry and how much more um, kind of resigned people are with, with the political situation. Mm, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting um, kind of how – when you were talking there about the the impact and just kind of some of the social cultural stuff, and you know, you look at polls and demographics, and it it is interesting how that that split isn't there actually anymore, you know, or divide I should say between East and West Germany, but it kind of comes through maybe in some of those other uh, components, which is which is really really interesting. So last question here is, you know, how what what's the what's the the future look like for Germany? How do they how does Germany I mean, just in 150 years has had so, so much history. How do they, you know, kind of accept, you know, all chapters of their history, you know, the good and the bad, and listen to all narratives, you know, East and West Germany and all together? And and how do they, you know, kind of move forward, um, you know, in a more unified way, I guess? I think there just needs to be an acceptance that you don't um, leave the past behind. I think there's a desire mm. often in Germany to do that. And there's actually a word for it, um, which which Germans use, which is Vergangenheitsbewältigung, kind of overcoming. A lovely German compound word, as so many. I, I love I love um, those. I love. That. I can't say them. <laughs> you you do it for me, but I, they're fantastic, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Vergangenheitsbewältigung basically means um, overcoming the past, which. I, I have lots of problems with that whole concept because it, you know, to me it triggers this image of Germany on a psychiatrist's sofa, you know, on a couch, mm. talking to to somebody about its childhood traumas and how to how to get past them. Well, I think you know, you you can't get rid of these things. You have to accept that they're there, that they were done. You know, this division of Germany existed. You can't just forget about it and expect these Germans to forget about it. Um, but it needs to be part of the national story that, that we tell ourselves, our children, future generations. Um, because if not, then it's exactly as, as you know, kind of trying to to, to bury a, a deep trauma somewhere in the in the corner of your mind uh, and trying to get past it because it will come back to bite you. It's there still. Um, and so what I was trying to do with the book was to to make some sort of contribution to that. But it's extremely um or it was extremely interesting to me to see the the response to that in Germany because it completely exploded. I mean, I'd expected some controversy in Germany because of the kind of somewhat detached, neutral tone, I think, that I use in the book. Um, rather than kind of saying everything was bad, I, I sort of just describe what happened or the way that I see it happening in East Germany um, to readers, and then readers can make their own minds up. And it's, it's very interesting. It's caused a massive debate in Germany. The, the book's been discussed on all the major media channels. There's a there's a debate named after me, the Hoyer debate, <laughs> which is a great, <laughs> great take off my bucket list. Um, but it wasn't it certainly isn't isn't an easy discussion to have. But I I I just found it incredibly fascinating, you know, sitting in Britain basically and looking on to this with, with some detachment, luckily. I'm sort of sitting in exile, if you will. Um, but looking on to this, you know, and, and seeing just, just how emotional it all is. Uh, you know, that it's I'd expected some sort of rational academic debate 
around whether the way that I talk about East Germany is is uh, kind of right and, and proper. But instead, it ended up being um, incredibly personal. People attacked me for for my own sort of background. My I discussed this briefly in the book. My my dad was an um, an officer in the in the air force in East Germany, and my mother a teacher. So they were they were certainly not opposition people. Uh, equally, I I still feel and I felt you know this for a long time. They were very apolitical people. They very quickly adapted to the conditions in West Germany. My mum is still a teacher actually today, um, so has been a teacher in in kind of capitalist democratic Germany for much longer than than the GDR. And yet people you know were sort of saying, oh, obviously it was typical you know that she talks about the GDR in this way, because of her parentage and. You know, I was four years old when the Berlin Wall fell. It was totally <laughs> absurd to me that somebody would even come up with that. But it's it was just interesting to me how personal, emotional, and ugly the debate very quickly became um, around my book. Um, and there was another book that came out kind of shortly before uh, by an East German um, author who basically wrote about the period from 1990 to now um, and said that there's still a concerted effort to sort of keep East Germans out of positions of power and government, almost like a minority um, within Germany, um, where he said people are being discriminated against. And that also is still a bestseller now, even though that came out, I think, in March or in February mm. earlier in the year, because it, it just created this massive debate but between the two books. And that, I think, clearly shows that this is something that Germany hasn't overcome and, and you know, needs to, needs to still talk about. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I I felt in reading this book as a, as a, you know uh, uh, compared to the the previous book you wrote, this one definitely felt more personal. Not just because you you were born in East Germany, but it just it just you you tell a lot of narrative accounts, which are really really nice, oh. and and it, it it feels it feels more more personal. It feels you know it's obviously very close you know it, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago there's obviously still many 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 people that are alive and from there so it's it feels it feels different and i could i could totally see that i could totally see how it could have a kind of emotional visceral kind of uh a reaction which you know i don't think it's always a bad thing um i, I don't think you want to be in the hot seat about, about some of these things <laughs> no, but it's certainly got people talking i mean but that's, yeah that's you know, good that's, yeah that's i think yeah. it's good for people to, to talk so um well you know, Katya. I mean, this is obviously you know you're 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 so lovely to to talk to. You have such a good handle on all of these uh, issues, and and uh, it's always a, a lot of fun talking to you on on the podcast. Here, the book is called Beyond the Wall: History of East Germany. Um, where's the best places to to find yourself, or any place in particular you want to point people to in, in terms of uh, your writing or anything like that? Um, yeah, so either uh, Twitter, I'm at Ahoya underscore cat. Um, and I've also got an, an online blog or substack called Zeitgeist, oh, nice. um, where I write about a lot of um, yeah, German history on a, on a weekly basis. So that's uh, free to subscribe to. Um, and there's two sort of little pieces that I write a week um, about um, basically all sorts of aspects of, of history, some East Germany, but, but not all of it. Mm, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, Katya, again, thanks so much for, for, for coming back on. You're always, always welcome here. Um, I, I really enjoy your, your voice and, and your brilliance. And so uh, it's always, it's always wonderful. So big, big, big thanks for, for coming on again. Thank you very much. It's been, been a pleasure to be back on and, and talk to you about East Germany. Absolutely. 